uh, we got a chance to uh, spend the week down in Malakoff. Anybody know where Malakoff is? Come up, a couple of you know where Malakoff is. And um, we just sang a song that talked about uh, God's artwork within the skies, right? There's this picture, and it talks about canvas and things like that in that same song. Um, there was a picture in one of the rooms that, beautiful house, beautiful place. There was a picture that was of a horse um, that if you just took it apart, it would be just pieces, right? Just kind of a mosaic of a horse, if that makes any sense. And each of the pieces were a little bit ugly, right? This color didn't make any sense here, and this piece didn't make any sense here, and this piece didn't make any sense here. But if you put it all together, there's something beautiful about it. You understand what I'm saying? You guys have seen artwork before like that. I think that's a good, I think that's a good illustration of, of who we are uh, as people of God, as a community of God, as a family of God, right? You take, you take one broken individual, such as myself, alone, it's pretty ugly. Um, or if I may, if you take one broken individual like yourself, it's pretty ugly. But if God does a work within each of us, and he draws us all together, and we all gather under one reason, one banner, that is Jesus Christ, then something beautiful happens. Do you follow what I'm saying? I want you to think about that a little bit this morning as we jump into Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, um, bear with me just a few moments, we'll get there. I've got a couple of New Testament texts that I want to share with you here in a sec, but we're going to eventually find uh, Genesis chapter 32 and talk about a text that you're probably all familiar with. Have you ever found yourself uh, thinking, perhaps as you were driving down the road, it seems like everywhere we go there's a construction zone ahead, right? Uh, in the world in which we live, um, we've lived in Anna for the last few years, and it seems like... Um, if it's not right there at 4.55 when you get off, it's somewhere bef between here and there. Uh, Larry and I have talked about the construction zone um, as he drives back and forth on that road from Sherman to McKinney uh, weekly. And have you, I've, I've, I've done this myself, and I wonder if you've done it yourself. Have you ever thought, well, if they would just fix that, then everything would be better? Or if they would just do this, then everything would be better? Does that make sense to anybody? It's not just construction zones, right? We always have a better idea of why or how people should uh, do things, don't we? We have it in our mind what we would like to see happen, and when it doesn't quite happen the way we want it to happen, then somehow we look down our noses at whoever it is that's trying to accomplish something. I don't think I'm the only person that feels that way, and I'm just being honest. I was reading this past week during one of my times with God and ran across this text from Proverbs 16, verse 18, and some of you will recognize it right away. It's one of those that you may have even memorized. The NIV says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Let me read that again. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. 
And as I was reflecting on that text this past week, I thought, or better yet, I didn't think God convicted me that I was a prideful person. I'm the most selfish person that I know. I really am. And guess what? You're the most selfish person that you know. Right? And we're all selfish. That's what sin is all about. And yet, the psalmist, or Solomon, I think, has it right when he says, pride goes before the fall. This idea of flesh versus spirit, this idea of this struggle of tension between the spirit and Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, he says. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin, it's pride, it's greed, it's arrogance, it's murder, it's rage, it's idolatry, you get the idea? It's fill in the blank living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who did it, do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. I suppose if Paul were reading his letter to us this morning, I would have to say, you're describing my life, Paul. I'm one of those that believe that Paul didn't write that as an immature believer. He wrote that as a very spiritual man. And I firmly believe the more we mature in Christ, the more spiritual we are, the more we recognize that we need Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? The more we mature in Christ, the more we become spiritual the way Jesus wants us to become spiritual, the more we understand we need a Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. Here in a few weeks, we'll be going through the book of Galatians, and I want to ask you to begin reading that now. Um, but I want to share a text with you from Galatians chapter 5 this morning. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Some of you know that text, right? And Paul would say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, listen, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, church, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. How I appreciate what you said about the spirit of unity uh, just a few moments ago. Because everything that Paul says 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness is contrary to that spirit of, of unity, right? And so Paul, whether it's in Romans chapter 7 within himself, or it's here in Galatians chapter 5, is recognizing this tension that's within us that comes from the sarks, the flesh. I think you probably recognize that in yourself. Even after you have come to know Jesus Christ, so my question to you this morning before we look at Genesis chapter 32 is what's different today? What's different today than it was before you knew Christ? Are you different? Am I different? Am I more of a person that God wants me to be today than I was yesterday? Or am I simply just going through the motions? Am I just doing enough to get by? Am I just placating this idea of numbness. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, I think we can get so inoculated, we can get so numb that we forget about the spiritual side of things. We, be, we become so religious that we forget to be the people that, that God wants us to be. I hope you've reflected on this idea of spirit versus flesh, flesh versus spirit. And I want to let you in on a little secret. Preachers uh, are learning as they go. Ministers are learning as they go, right? In other words, if someone tells you they have it all together, they're either mistaken or they're lying. Uh, since we're all at different places on a spiritual journey, some of us understand things a little better than others. But those at other places can help us as well. And as we just read in Proverbs chapter 16, we should never lose our humility. Paul, before he talks about that fruit of the Spirit, talks about the fruit of sin, if you will. And he mentions this idea of flesh versus spirit over and over and over again. I want you to think with me through a text this morning that you're familiar with, or you should be familiar with. It's Genesis chapter 32. And let me review just a couple of minutes before we get into chapter 32. We've talked about God being sovereign, right? God is all-knowing, God is all-good, God is self-sufficient, He's sovereign, right? We talked about God being a missional God a couple of weeks ago. God is the first missionary. In other words, before He calls us to go and be missionaries to the world around us, by the way, look around you and see those people that are missing. Have you written a card? Have you made a phone call? Have you dropped by? Have you said how much you miss them? Please do that this week. Please invite somebody that you've intended to invite for, for some time, right? God's a missional God. He expects us to be missional people. We just sang about that a few minutes ago. So God is a missional God. We also talked about God being a sacrificial God. Before God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, you know, he uses phrases like your son, your only son, knowing full well what would happen with Jesus, right? Jesus, God's own son, would go to the cross and say some crazy things like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, right? That's a sacrificial kind of love. Or you read about that sacrifice in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says he gave up equality with God. He didn't think of anything other than coming and being a servant. And you should have the mind of Christ, being a, a servant, a sacrifice, and so much so a servant and love and going to the cross and sacrificing your 
yourself for the kingdom of God, that kind of sacrifice, right? So we've talked about God being a sacrificial God. But today I want to talk about a God who wants you to become dependent. That kind of flies in the face of society, doesn't it? Especially those of us who are Texans, who are very independent. We celebrate our independence, right? We just happened to have a celebration of independence just a couple of weeks ago, right? We, we all bleed red, white, and blue, amen? <laughs> yeah, we do, right? I mean, let's be honest, right? We like our independence. We like it so much so that sometimes we forget about the gospel, and sometimes we forget about God wanting us to be dependent upon him. In other words, you, you have to give up control to understand what salvation is all about. In our Bible study this morning, we were talking about who is man, who am I? One of the big things, for those of you who were in there and those of you who weren't, one of the big things, if you remain independent, if you drag yourself up by your bootstraps, and some of you have been told this all of your life, there's a certain generation, especially that generation my grandparents grew up in, right? The 20s and 30s around the Depression time, right? Drag yourself up by your bootstrap. Try harder. Be a work ethic. I agree with that. I completely agree with that. But this idea of independence, 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 be self-sufficient, flies directly in the face of the gospel. Because you can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. And so the question is, is what do we do? Esau, as you know, um, was the oldest son uh, of Jacob. And Esau had his birthright taken from underneath him, stolen from him. Anybody remember that story? Right? In fact, he sold it for a bowl of stew, right? Didn't think it was going to be a big deal because he wasn't feeling well. Um, and he said, nothing, nothing going to happen to me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to, to uh, experience this blessing from God. And so he sells his birthright um, to Jacob, his brother, younger brother. This Jacob, who is a, called a heel grabber throughout Scripture, he deceives him by way of his mother. And his mother says, as soon as he, you guys remember the story, right? Um, he goes into Isaac and he says, bless me, bless me, or bless me, bless me, bless me. And finds out that the blessing has already been passed on to his brother, Jacob. And in chapter 32, we pick up the reading after, well, let's read. Chapter 32, look, at, uh, verse, look down at verse 32. That night when Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Make a note of that. We'll come back to it here in a few moments. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with a man. And the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you've overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, 
It is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. So the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this opportunity that I have to be in front of these brothers and sisters, um, this special body of believers at Hillcrest Christian Church. I ask God that as we consider your word this morning, as, um, as you give me words to speak, they will be your words and not my own. Father, I pray for each uh, ear in this place to hear. I pray, God, for each of us to be receptive um, to your will, uh, to your path forward. Um, continue to provide grace, continue to provide mercy, continue to provide compassion to each of us. I pray these things through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So back to the history uh, lesson. Jacob and Esau. Jacob has a dream at Bethel, if you remember. After he has gotten Esau's birthright, right? He has a dream at Bethel, and before he leaves the promised land, if you will. If you remember Genesis chapter 12, we've looked about this over and over uh, the last several weeks. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, there's seven promises that God promises to Abraham. And one of those promises being, and all peoples and all generations will be blessed through you. Of course, we've recognized that as being a messianic promise, a promise of Jesus Christ, not just to the Jews, amen, just, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to you and I as well, to the entire world. We looked at John Chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world. And one of those things that God provides uh, Isaac, this, this child of the promise, right? And then we have Esau and Jacob. And Isaac has promised or uh, given this promised, uh, back up for a second, I'm getting ahead of myself. Isaac has been given this, this promise of Rebekah. If you remember, we looked at that last week. And then we get to this, this leaving, uh, this, this promised land and visiting with God at, at a place called Bethel. And he's on his way back to the promised land after he's told by God he's received Rachel. He's also been uh, manipulated by his father-in-law. Um, it's kind of interesting that Jacob's a manipulator, right? Would you agree? Would you agree? Yeah, if you know the story of Jacob, he is a... 101 manipulator. He is a manipulator on steroids. He's a liar. He's a controller. He's stolen a birthright from Esau, as we've talked about. He's stolen a blessing from, um, from Esau. He has connived his father-in-law, Laban, and he's experienced a little bit of his own medicine with Laban. Laban has tricked him. He gave him, instead of Rachel, he gave him Leah, right, to work for him seven more years. And finally we get Rachel. We finally get this, this woman that has been promised to, uh, to Jacob. He's on his way back to the promised land as God has directed him, and he knows that Esau is out to kill him. He's been out to kill him since he stole the birthright. We're all on the same page. And he's still manipulating. He still shows his character in that he is trying to save everything that he can. God has blessed him over and over and over again. Go back and, and read 
uh, prior to chapter 32 of Genesis, sometime today or sometime this next week. But God has promised him over and over again, and he's recognized that it comes from, from God, and yet he finds himself still manipulating. And why do I say that? Because he sins group by group, and he's asking for his brother's favor, and he says, if these people die, then this portion will be left. And if he takes these people, then I will remain with these people. Does that make sense? Do you follow what I'm saying? He's still a manipulator. He's still a liar. He's still trying to control everything. And I was thinking this past week, how do I still control things? What's my motivation? Do I give expecting something in the return? If my motivation is expecting something in return, then that tells you a lot about my character. You follow what I'm saying? For those of you who have done Meals on Wheels the last 20 years, do you still do Meals on Wheels because it's out of the, the goodness of your heart or do you expect a blessing in return? Right? If you're expecting that blessing in return, if that, that health and wealth gospel that's so popular today, right? Why do you give? It's not to get. You follow what I'm saying? It's all based on love. Okay? That's why God gave us. Does that make sense? And yet we still find, we still find this uh, manipulator. We still find this liar. We still find this controller. And I still find myself much like, much like Jacob. He wants to save face. And so he begins to send this group. And finally he sends the, his wives across. And, and he remains, notice I, I told you we would come back to this. He remains alone. Because I think that's important here in chapter 32, where it says he remains alone, and this is only when he meets with God. Verse 30, uh, 24, I should say. Chapter 32, verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Have you ever wrestled with God? I've wrestled with God uh, my prayer life, and I've wrestled with God, and I've wrestled with God, and oftentimes I... Um, I feel like that God has, has uh, told me this is what needs to happen. And I'll still wrestle with but God. I, 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 try, I try to tell God what he should do. And maybe you've been there before. Has that worked out for you any? Right? Has it worked out for me at all? Right? Here, Jacob wrestles with God. And notice what he does. He asks him. It says he wrestles with him till daybreak. And I think that's interesting because it's not just this short wrestling match. Uh, how many of you remember the, the NWA, the old professional wrestling? Anybody? Anybody? You know, okay, you guys, you guys are honest. The rest of these people aren't honest. I remember when I was a kid growing up, I'd go to my grandparents' house, and Saturdays at 4 o'clock, right, my granddad was a big wrestling fan. And I took Christian several years ago to a, uh, down here to American Airlines, and we watched wrestling, and I thought, what a big farce. They weren't even close, right? Well, I knew that. He didn't know it was fake. Um, but we find out it's just all... Nevertheless, going back to my childhood, my granddad thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And some of you saw NWA, right? You knew who Ric Flair were. You knew who the Four Horsemen were, right, Mickey? Right? Von Erichs. Anybody know the Von Erichs? This is kind of Von Erichs country, right? So this idea of wrestling. But this is not just like a three-minute wrestling match. This is not like a five-minute wrestling match. This is... Jacob alone wrestling with a man who we'll know later becomes God, is God, right? Why do I know that? Because the text tells us that in chapter 32, right? He's wrestling with God. 
He's wrestling with God. And it doesn't, it's not just a short, short time, it's for a long time until daybreak, all night long. This is a long wrestling match. I told you I'm probably the, the most selfish person I know. I am the selfish, most selfish person I know. You're the most selfish person you know. But I'm almost the, I'm the most impatient person I know as well. I want to get in and get out, right? When I go shopping, I want to, I want to do my shopping, I want to get out. I'm impatient, right? When I go to prayer even, listen, I'm just being honest. When I go to prayer, I go through boom, 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 boom. I want God to fix this, fix this, fix this, and I'm gone, right? Anybody else? Right? Thank you. We don't, we don't wrestle we don't wrestle with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We want, God to, we want God to fix it right now. We want God to, to just do away with the pain. We want God to, to stop the suffering. We want God to, to do something and eliminate whatever it is that, we, that makes us uncomfortable. And God's not necessarily interested in our comfort. God's interested in our holiness. God's interested in our righteousness. God's interested in us becoming the people that He wants us to be. Do you understand the difference? I hope you understand the difference. Jacob, who is heel grabber, he's known to heel, he's, he's a conniver, he's a deceiver, he's a controller, he's a manipulator. He has been that until he meets with God right here. And it says later on, I will not let you go. What does he do? He asks for this blessing. He asks for this, uh, this, you know, he, there's this wrestling match going on. The man says, let me go for it, it's daybreak. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Unless you bless me. I'm going to hang on, I'm going to hang on, I'm going to hang on. And the man said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, I'm a heel grabber. I'm a... You know in the New Testament where Jesus runs across this blind man named Bartimaeus. Interesting text because Jesus, Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. He's blind. It's obvious he's blind. And have you ever thought about the question that Jesus asked Bartimaeus? What is it that you want me to do for you? Doesn't it seem obvious? He's blind. I wonder sometimes, though, if we think of a question as being obvious, so obvious that we never speak it out loud. Do you follow what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying? One of the things I mentioned to you last week is when I pray for people, I ask, be as specific as you can. Tell me specifically because I think God wants us to pray specific prayers. God wants us to pray specifically about things. When we don't pray, when we just pray these vague prayers, God, heal this person. God, do this. God, God be God. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think the more specific we pray is more about faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? And so when we pray that way, when blind Bartimaeus says, I want to see, I wonder sometimes if we miss that. Do you think God knew his name? Of course he knew his name, but why did he ask? Or think about this illustration. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're off hiding right after they sin, God shows up and says what? Where are you? Does he know where Adam and Eve are? Of course he knows where Adam and Eve are, but why does he ask the question? So they'll recognize where they're at. Do you follow? Sometimes I think we forget to ask the obvious questions. We forget to recognize 
the things that seem so obvious. And so God asked, um, what is your name? And Jacob said, I'm a, I'm a heel grabber, I'm a deceiver, I'm a conniver, I'm a liar. And so the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Why Israel? Remember the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? This whole nation, chapter 18, all these people that will be circumcised, all these people that will be set apart for this nation called Israel. Why Israel? Because Israel means striving with God. You know the history of Israel? They play out, right? plays out. They strive with God, and this time it says you've struggled with God and with humans, and you've overcome. It's obvious that he struggled with humans. Esau, Laban, Rachel, Leah. I could go on and on how he manipulates over and over and over again. And here he's trying to manipulate God himself. And Jacob says, please tell me your name. But the man replied, why do you ask my name? Notice he never answers the question, right? He never answers the question. But he blessed him as Jacob had asked him to. Isn't that interesting? Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God, what? Face to face. An intimate wrestling with God. Can I challenge you with something this morning? When you pray about something, remember the widow um, who went to the judge over and over and over and over and over and over, you get the idea? And the judge finally says, do something. Give her what she wants, right? And it's not because she's obnoxious. It's not because she's harassing. It's because she's persistent in knowing what she wants. And Jesus uses that illustration as an illustration of prayer, of saying, this is how you should pray. Pray this way, persistently, over and over and over and over. I've mentioned to some of you before, my grandmother was the most persistent prayer that I know. Right? She prayed about things for not just days or weeks or months, but she prayed about them for years and years and years. And when she would have something that would, that would be answered, she would write it down in her journal. She would recognize, hey, I prayed about this for X number of months. I prayed about this for X number of weeks. I prayed about this for years. And there were probably things that when she passed away that were still left undone. Nevertheless, she was persistent in her prayer. You understand what I'm saying? We just don't pray about somebody's salvation one time, or two times, or three times. We pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we wrestle, and we wrestle, and we wrestle with God. I love what it says. It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. This wrestling match, this time alone with God. Remember, he's alone with God, and yet everybody would acknowledge that he had had something special to him. How do we know that? Because from that very day, from that point on, wherever he went, he was reminded of his wrestling with God because he limped. I wonder if you could think back on a time that you have wrestled with God and you've been reminded. Maybe it's something like your baptism. Maybe it's uh, something like coming down and rededicating your life um, to Jesus. Have you, have you done something in your life or has God done something in your life that, that you have to recognize it was God? Could you look back? If we, if we give you a timeline, could you look back at a particular time and say, 
right there. Right then, my life changed for the better. Right then, I experienced life. Right then, I experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right then, I became no longer religious, but it was about relationship with the one true God. Have, anybody know what I'm talking about, right? Hey, yeah, yeah. And for those of us who haven't experienced that, my prayer continues to be that you will experience that. Can I offer to you one more, one more text this morning before we close? This is a text that may not set very well with some of you, but I hope you'll hear it um, in the spirit that in, in, it's intended. This is from Luke chapter 13, Jesus himself speaking. And I want you to, I want you to hear this, especially, well, all of us need to hear this. It says, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Seems like a pretty important question, would you agree? Listen to how he answers the question. He said to them, make every effort to enter the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do so. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us, but he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate, we drank with you, you taught in our streets, but he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last when they will be first, and those who are first that will be last. Do you hear how important it is when he's asked about how many will be saved? He doesn't answer the question with numbers, does he? What does he answer the question with? It's a heart issue. Right? It's not about being religious. It's about, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? It's almost like this Matthew 25 text that we've warned over and over and over about, about the sheep and the goats, right? The sheep, he will say, come and inherit everything provided for you. To the goats, he will say, go away to eternal punishment. But Lord, didn't we, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. So what's the point? Why why am I bringing up Luke chapter 13? Because did you notice what it said at the first of his answer? He says, many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to do so. Why will that not be able to do so? Because they will try. And they will try harder. And they will try harder. And they will try harder. It's all based upon their own merits. Remember the rich young ruler? Rich young ruler has a great question for Jesus, and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal salvation? Really? Inherit eternal salvation? That's what he says. Inherit eternal salvation. You know what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. What do the Ten Commandments say? Well, Lord, I've, I've done all those ever since I was a little boy. I've kept all the commandments. Good. Now go sell everything that you have, and then come follow me. You hear what happens? I've been a law keeper. Now Jesus says, but what about your heart? Go sell everything you have, and then come and follow 
me. In other words, you are no longer in control. You let God be in control. With Jacob, you are no longer in control. You've got to let God be in control. You are no longer in charge of manipulating people. You are no longer a controller. You are no longer one who looks down upon people. You are no longer that old man, Paul would say. But now you've met Jesus. Now you've been baptized. Now you have this heart change. Or David would say, I've, give, I've been given a new heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? You are no longer the old person. You are now the new person. In Romans chapter 6, Paul would say, you've been baptized. You've been buried. What do you do to somebody who's been, they're dead, Right? but you've been risen to walk in a newness of life. See, something happens, right? The reason I ask you is what's changed? Are you any different today than you were before you met Jesus? If not, it begs the question, have you really met Jesus? I think Genesis chapter 32 is a good example of Jacob. When he sees God face to face, we as New Testament Christians have to acknowledge something takes place when you're in the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in the presence of God, when I leave that place, I want to limp. When you're in the presence of God, something has to change. You've got to die to self. You can't all be in control anymore. God has to be in control. Amen? Let's pray. Father, for your word, I pray that you would uh, continue to bless us, God, continue to give us grace and mercy. Um, God, if there's someone here today that has never experienced um, genuine heart change, um, perhaps we're just going through the motions, but I pray today is a day of salvation. Uh, for those of us, God, who have um, kind of dabbled with Christianity, um, we follow today, but we revert back to our default um, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, help us to recognize, God, the struggle is real, right? The flesh still, uh, still maintains an identity, and yet we as followers of Jesus Christ need to understand that we can no longer be in control, that we must crucify ourselves daily, that it's all about being a follower of Jesus Christ day in, day out. Help us, God, I pray, through the righteousness of Jesus. Amen.